3: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Happy Monday. It's uh, August 7th and uh, kind of a gray, rainy day here in Washington, D.C., although the rest of the week is going to be very nice, but it's cool and pleasant. I hope you're having a nice weather wherever you may be. Uh, I wanted to talk in our, it's anything goes summer and, you know, any, any, any topic that you think is, uh, you know, worthy of discussion, we can, can consider. But I, I have a stack here of <laughs> things that I'd like to talk about, uh, and uh, you know, from from fossil fuel sub- subsidies to, to flame retardants to job numbers. Well, in fact, let's start there. In fact, I, you know, in, in fact, what I'd like to do for this first hour, and and get your input on this as well, is define the American dream. What is the American dream? What does the American dream mean to you? Robert Schiller, the uh, economist, wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, from uh, August 4th. What was that, last uh, Thursday or Friday? And it's titled The Transformation of the American Dream. And he basically, you know, uh, Donald Trump made this uh, back in January in a speech. He said, you know, the American dream is back. What does he mean by that? There's no longer a black guy in the White House? Is that what he means? Um, Actually, Schiller doesn't even ask that question. I ask it. Back in the 30s, Schiller points out, the American dream did not mean what Trump and Ben Carson, the head of uh, of Housing and Urban Development, have alleged or have said that it means. Basically, Trump and Ben Carson have said that the American dream means Uh, that the average person can buy a home and start a business. You can be an entrepreneur. Well, very few of us actually want to be entrepreneurs or can successfully be entrepreneurs. Uh, Most people would just like a good job that pays well, that fulfills them, that gives them some sense of satisfaction in the workplace, some sense of control over their lives. Um, but, you know, back in the 30s, and this is, this is just fascinating, back in the 1930s, uh, according to Robert Schiller, the American dream meant freedom, mutual respect, and equality of opportunities. Which is kind of ironic, because in the 30s, we were living in an apartheid society. So, I guess, at least for white people, that's what the American dream meant back in the 1930s. It had, uh, Schiller writes, it had more to do with morality than material success. He says the the definition of the American dream is important and consequential because it represents our core values. And then out of those values, once we've defined our core values, out of those values comes government decisions on housing, government decisions on regulation, government decisions on things like mortgage guarantees, and you know, all these kinds of things. And if you define the American dream as, hey, I can get a bigger, better house then your government policy would all be toward oriented, oriented toward helping people get houses, for example, as was the case during the George W. Bush administration. During the Bo- George W. Bush administration, uh, he signed a piece of legislation in 2003 called the American dream down payment act. And what it did was it reduced the amount of, uh, of an, of down payment that you had to make on a house making it easier for subprime borrowers or people who really are just kind of on the edge of, should you buy a house or not? Can you really afford to buy a house or not? Are you buying a house? And if you get sick or you lose your job, you know, you're going to lose it. I mean, all these kind of things that made it easier for people to get into houses starting in 2003. And we saw where that led in 2008 when the housing market collapsed. The whole bubble fell in on top of itself. In fact, Forbes magazine got into the act. This year, they've got this thing that they call the American Dream Index, which is a measure of, basically, to quote Schuller again, material prosperity, bankruptcies, building building permits, entrepreneurship, goods producing, employment, labor participation rate, layoffs and unemployment claims. And Schuller notes, this is very different from the original spirit of the American Dream. The original spirit of the American dream was laid out by a writer by the name of James Truslow Adams in 1931. He wrote a book called The Epic of America. I would argue that you could take the American dream back to uh, back to de, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, 1838, as I recall. It might, might, might have been 1836. Uh, he published a book called Democracy in America. He was a French aristocrat. He came over here, spent six months traveling around uh, the East East Coast and Got as far west as Tennessee, I believe, and uh, came over basically to prove to himself that a country without a, a ruling class, a ruling elite, could not work. And instead, he came to the opposite conclusion. He was quite blown away by it. I, I read this book back in the late 1990s for the very first time. I was familiar with it from high school, but uh, when I was writing What Would Jefferson Do? Um, I, I I read de Tocqueville's book. and. And in fact, actually, a chapter from his book became a chapter or was the basis of a chapter in my book, Unequal Protection. And Tocqueville essentially talked about the American dream as one in which every American had a certain baseline of education, information, and political power. Now, again, he was talking about white people, but he was talking, he, you know, he, he, he literally would walk up to farmers in their fields. This is what so blew Alexis de Tocqueville's mind. This is, again, keep in mind, in the 1830s, Thomas Jefferson had just died. Andrew Jackson, I, I'm guessing, probably was president. I'm um, not sure who exactly it would have been, but, it, you know, I uh, have to go back and look at the order of them. But, but that, you know, it was that era. I mean, it was, this, was, this was post-founding of the country, but pre-Industrial Revolution. It was just, you know, the steam engine was just starting to catch hold. The, there was not a transcontinental railroad. That came with Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War in the 1860s. The Golden Spike was in 1867, as I recall, where the two, two railroads from the east to west coast met each other. So, But in this book, The Epic of America, James Truslow Adams said, the American dream is not a dream of motor cars and high wages, but a dream of a social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and recognized by others for what they are. In other words, opportunity to achieve. Opportunity to be all you can. Opportunity to be who you are. He says, by the 1950s, shortly after World War II and the triumph against fascism, the American dream was still about freedom and equality. So the American dream, basically from the founding of the republic up until the 1950s, and in the 1960s, the American dream was deeply rooted In this idea of morality and virtue and value and opportunity Um, as, uh, you know, as its principal proponent at the time, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in his I Have a Dream speech in 1963, in fact, in that speech, he talked about a vision that, quote, was deeply rooted in the American dream, end quote. So right up until the 60s, the American dream was about a a morality, essentially. And government policies that would promote that morality. In 1944, President Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, he proposed his economic bill of rights, the second bill of rights. And it had six items. Every American. and, And he wanted this in the Constitution as a right, which means that if the private economy, if capitalism fails to provide it, then the government does. So number one, a job. So the government became the employer of last resort. And that's exactly what happened with the WPA, the CCC, and all these other, uh, you know, acronym agencies that FDR started. Number two, an adequate wage and decent living. He did that with minimum wage laws and, and strength of unionization. Number three, a decent home. Well, that was echoed by George W. Bush in 2003. Although, you know, it became more aspirational. I would say that the major place where the American dream flipped was in the 80s when Reagan essentially said that the the American dream is not not having a happy life, it's having a prosperous life, that money came to define everything. And we've basically been stuck there ever since. Okay, back to the second Bill of Rights, FDRs. Number four, something that every, a right that every American should be entitled to. And it it blows my mind that, uh, you know, reading Paul Krugman's column in today's New York Times, the Democratic Party is still arguing about this. In 1944, the most popular Democratic president in the history of the United States, it was elected to four terms as President of the United States said, the fourth right that we should all have is the right to medical care. Number five, economic protection during sickness, accident, old age, or unemployment. In other words, a strong social safety net, unemployment insurance, Social Security. And number six, a good education, free schools, free colleges. Now, this was in 1944, that Franklin Roosevelt defined the American dream in these terms. So what does the American dream mean to you? What does it mean to all of us? I think one of the biggest differences between Democrats and Republicans is their view of the American dream. Increasingly, the Republican view of the American dream is empowered white people and lots and lots of riches. Oh, and the oligarchs getting more and more and more, and the regulations going away so that the oligarchs get even richer. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Meanwhile, Democrats are trying to define the American dream in terms of egalitarianism and a return to the values of FDR. Where do you stand? And welcome back. Mouse working here. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar. Thanks for uh, thanks for watching us. You wanted to talk about the American Dream? Yes, yeah,
1: Tom. This is a great topic which I was always hoping to bring up. The American Dream is prosperity for all, generational prosperities. You know, basically living your life um, um, uh, within the law. But I gotta tell you, it's very challenging these days because the American Dream is under attack by the Mercer family, Alec the Koch brothers, you know, and all these all-a-clock billionaires who are basically on all these banksters who want to basically just richen themselves, you know, on the back of the American people. And it's really disturbing. Yeah. And we need
3: a leader who is going to be able to kind of derail all those um, um, aggressive- Now, issues. Republicans would say all these billionaires are proof that the American dream is alive and well. Look at, uh, you know, Robert Mercer made a fortune.
1: But but it's it's supposed to to benefit all. He made a fortune, but he made a fortune in the back of the American people. Just like Elizabeth Warren said, you know, he made a a fortune, but he didn't make it on his own. Along the way, the government, they were programmed where he benefited, you know? Where he benefited from those initiatives. He didn't get there on his own. The government helped him, and people also helped him, you know? And the system that in place to advance individuals helped them. Well, he got rich, and then he forgot about everybody else.
3: Could be. I, you know, I don't know Robert Mercer personally or frankly that much about him, but um, how, how, how do you think that most of your friends and colleagues perceive the American dream?
1: Well, they see this
3: as prosperity, you know, due process. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, I have family overseas. I'm telling you, if there's a World War III, 99% of the war will be on the U.S. side. Why? Because there's something in here that does not, is not anywhere in the war, And it's been under attack. That's due process, treating everybody fairly, right? Regardless who you who you are, you know, you could be an immigrant, you can be an American, but you have the law. In some countries, if you're not a national, you can't sue any native person, or you can sue any company. Right, you have to be a citizen to take them to court.
3: Right, you know what I mean? Yeah, I I I do. 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 Omar, it, it, uh, you know, you have friends uh, overseas, family overseas. I, I, I think I detect a very faint. uh, accent in your voice, um, yes. I, so I'm, and I, I hope this doesn't insult you, um, but no. if you are a, an immigrant to the United States, um, how I, I would think that you'd be in a position to have some unique perspectives on how people who are not U.S. citizens um, view the American dream. Uh, can you can you speak to that in the forty-five seconds we have left, yeah. or am I, I am I wrong? I'm,
1: no, no, you're absolutely right, and you never offend me, Tom. No matter what you say, thank you, you You're my spiritual leader um, uh, political, especially, but it's basically due process that equal right, you know, the mm-hmm. fact that, 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 it, it, you know, for example, you're not going to be, everybody's equal, everybody has the same right, you know, uh, um, uh, for, for example, you're not going to join a party because you're not going to get benefit because you're a member of a royal family or right. you're a member of a, a bath party
3: or, or a selectively a prosecuted. Party.
1: Exactly. Or a member of the bath party or anything like that, or, or a Chinese party. You don't right. have to join anything. To have your right given to you, you know, all you have to do is live in and within the law. And and people they aspire to the American dream because they know that if you live right, you, you work hard, you will get paid for for it. You will have a family, you can raise your family. You have good education, you know, you have good life. But it's, it's been under attack. Right. And, and I just want to end up with this one last thing. Trump want to cut immigration to have, you know, Apple founder Steve Jobs. His father was Syrian
3: and a refugee. So, He was a Syrian refugee. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. Omar, thank you very much. I appreciate the call. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We're talking about the American dream. And what does this mean, right? What, and, 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 and what does it mean to you? Omar uh, called during the break and he was talking about how he was, he's an immigrant to the United States and, And the American, and, and many people outside the United States talk about the American dream as meaning one of two things, principally, one, that you're not going to be selectively prosecuted because you've offended the government. Um, It's, uh, and this isn't his example, this is mine, but for example, in China, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, this was very much the case a decade ago. Um, It was illegal to move without the permission of the police, and yet, For mostly economic opportunity, but sometimes just even government would come in and build a new city and say to the farmers, you got to move. You know, some massive proportion of the population had moved, at least the urban population had moved in the last couple of years without police permission, which left pretty much everybody in a situation where if they upset the authorities, they could be arrested for moving without police permission and end up in jail for a few years. And it goes kind of beyond that. I mean, here in the United States, and this is the the hell, the personal hell that Donald Trump is going to be living through. You know, the old, the old joke that a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich um, may well be true. And we're going to find out if Donald Trump is a ham sandwich. But uh, the fact of the matter is, in the United States, if, if they decide they're going to take you out, it, it can happen. It's just not routine. It's not the norm. Whereas it's absolutely the norm in countries like Saudi Arabia, for example. You've got these uh, young people. It's, uh, what, 14, I believe it is, young people who are all, who are all just sentenced to death by the Saudi government, by, to beheading, because in 2011, when the Arab Spring was happening, there was a big demonstration in, in Saudi Arabia calling for democracy. And these people showed up at the demonstration and they were Shia. They were Shiite uh, Muslims. And Saudi Arabia, of course, is run by a, a Sunni dictatorship, a monarchy. So um, fail, freedom from capricious prosecution is the American dream in the minds of some people. And then on the other hand, freedom to, uh, for, to have opportunity based on merit rather than relationship. Another thing that Omar pointed out, that in other countries, you get a job with the government, you get a contract with the government because your brother-in-law is a member of the royal family or because you're good friends with somebody who's, who's uh, you know, a high up bureaucrat. In other words, it's all cronyism, right? It's all, it's all bakshish. So, uh, you know, you've got that. Uh, as the American dream, the other part is you know having a good job. And by the way, apropos of that, there's a fascinating article over at the, the IWB website um, that'll continue to beware the job numbers. Is it the Bureau of Labor Statistics or Bureau of Line Statistics? And I, I realize, and this is this guy talks about his own. This is his own economics blog. And why did he do it? But you know, uh, Trump is trumpeting the fact that uh, 209,000 jobs were gained in July. Did you know that in terms of full-time jobs, we actually lost 54,000 jobs in July? Which means that the balance was all part-time jobs. Part-time jobs saw a huge increase in July. Now, how many of those were full-time jobs becoming part-time jobs? How many of those... And those part-time jobs are mostly things like, you know, in healthcare or in basically services industry, healthcare or restaurants or bartenders. And wages were up, but in those fields, the average pay is around thirteen bucks an hour. So people are making thirteen fifty. Big whoop, right? So when you actually dig in, as they did over on the Zero Hedge site, if you actually dig into these numbers. Uh, you see that, uh, you know, the average wage in the hospitality sector is $13.35. Um, we're, we're looking at 20,000 retail stores closing their doors in the first half of this year. That's pretty mind-boggling. Amazon.com no doubt played a major role in that, as does Walmart. It's going to be interesting to see if Amazon takes down Walmart. But what does that mean for the American dream? What does that mean for your idea? of humor? What does that mean for how we should pursue public policy to give everybody access to the American? I think it's all found in FDR's second bill of rights. I'd love to hear. you. While Trump is off playing golf. I don't know. Maybe that's his idea of the American dream. Hey, I can play golf for 17 days. Uh, we're trying to figure it out. You can support the Tom Hartman program and see video of our entire three-hour show over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Meanwhile, the NRA has a very different view of the American dream. Apparently, their idea of the American dream is sort of like Mussolini's, right? We are the clenched fist that will stop the leftists. These protesters, these hippies, these, these people of color, these 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 malcontents, these people who are unhappy with the way things are going, we, the weapons manufacturers of America, are the clenched fist. This is uh, you know right wing commentator Dana Loesch uh, with a brand new ad for the uh, NRA. Here it is.
2: They use their media to assassinate real news. They use their schools to teach children that their president is another Hitler. They They use their movie stars and singers and comedy shows and award shows to repeat their narrative over and over again The only way we save our country and our freedom is to fight this violence of lies with the clenched fist of truth. I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm freedom's safest place.
3: Right. Actually, if you have guns in your home, you're more likely to have accidental deaths in your home. You're more likely to have suicides in your home. Your kids are more likely to die. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is the NRA shtick, that the American dream is the clenched fist of truth. And uh, how dare those, those malcontents protest. That's not the American dream. Pretty amazing stuff. Sue in Morgan, Pennsylvania. Your thoughts on the American dream, Sue? Hey, Sue. You're on the air. No? Okay. You got to listen to your telephone, not your TV. Or your radio. Anthony in Jackson, Mississippi. Hey Anthony. Uh what your thoughts on the American Dream? Hey, Tom. Hey, Anthony.
4: Okay. I'm glad that you got me on the line and I thank you so much for taking my call. Uh yes, I have a couple of points about the American dream. Um, I wanna start by stating that this is my perspective only. I understand that a lot of people have different perspectives. I'm twenty three. I was born in Louisiana, raised in Mississippi, so I have a very unique perspective as a young black man and that perspective ultimately has led me to believe um, wholeheartedly that the American dream is basically propaganda for the most part Um, for a number of reasons Uh, first of all every conversation I've had with anybody or have heard discussed about the American dream has always had an era of um, meritocracy already embedded into the discussion that has never ever been realized in this country so there right off the back is a, a cue to me that it's probably propaganda for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, there's never been a meritocracy in this country for, of course, black people. We've always been at the lowest rank of this country. So there's obviously not any meritocracy to it. As far as the American dream, um, being associated with the 60s uh, civil rights movement, I would um, counter that, kind of, um, by saying that I think Dr. King more so was attempting to um strangle the white establishment of that time into understanding their hypocrisy. I don't think there was any morality associated with the american dream if Well, wouldn't it
3: wouldn't like it anthony might it might it not be accurate to say that that, that essentially the message of dr. King uh, obviously one of many, but you know his social justice, his economic justice, his uh, criminal justice reform calls all were very various ways of saying uh that people of color should have the same access to the quote American dream end quote that white people have had for a couple of centuries.
4: Well see that's the issue Tom. The thing is this is one country so there is no American dream if there's not an American dream for everyone. So to say yeah. that there was an American dream for just white people, that's not the case because there was no American dream. There was simply uh, some sort of caste system, honestly, and it's mm. probably still ongoing as far as the numbers go. Oh, sure. Uh, but back to my point about Dr. King in the 60s, quite frankly, I think it was more so him attempting to stranglehold the establishment and time into understanding the hypocrisy that they, they stood deep in Right. Um, basically, by putting a mirror up to them, because obviously there was no morals associated with the American Dream. Because if there were, there wouldn't be entrenched Jim Crow or segregation to the extent that there was. Right. Um, but I think that's the, that's the only thing I think you may, have, may be missing about Dr. King' um, movement is that he not nece- he didn't necessarily believe these things were actually the re- reality or were going to be the reality. He wanted them to be the reality. He didn't believe that they existed for anybody because you can't have a meritocracy for some people and not, oh, it's not a meritocracy.
3: Right. No, I, I understand that. And, and, but, but in, in terms of, of Dr. King, I mean, his, his statement was, um, hang on just a second, I had it just a minute ago. He said uh, that my vision is deeply rooted in the American dream. That was from his 1963, I have a dream speech. Certainly. Does that change your perspective?
4: at that point but I think it was more so again to exemplify to the the establishment of that time the hypocrisy of them espousing these
3: Oh, I agree. I think we may be saying the same yeah.
4: thing. But they never really actually had it all But yeah. we certainly are in agreement on most of everything as far as that another point just my last one I know it's probably other people is that as far as the um American dream goes as far as it being propaganda Another uh, point that being propaganda is that there is no real tangible – there's no tangible policy that pushes an American dream realistically forward in this country over history or over any short period of time because it just doesn't exist. There's nothing codified in law that basically outlaws um, American dream-type policy. Uh, The Constitution doesn't even do that.
3: So – Therefore, what?
4: Therefore, it's it's just propaganda for the most part. I see.
3: So yeah, I think I think there's always been an element of sales pitch to it. In fact, Schuller in his in his article points out in the 1950s, American corporations started using the phrase "the American Dream" to sell us everything from new homes to new cars to toasters and refrigerators, and you know basically this was the beginning of the commodification of the American Dream. So, yeah, I, you know, uh, excellent points all Anthony. Excellent points all. Thank you for calling and sharing them with us. Sue in Morgan, Pennsylvania. Hey Sue, what's on your mind?
5: Hi Tom, thank you and your whole crew and your lovely wife. Um my definition of it is that we acknowledge what we've done to the native tribes and that we acknowledge what we've done to the African Americans and providing atonement and equality and political power for all of us collectively
3: um well and let's not forget and let's not forget hispanics and asians and and lgbtq people and women i mean basically the american dream has been there for white men
5: exactly and misogynists, and and we need to actually Do what our country could be great from doing instead of pretending that lying and conniving and capitalism is so great. Yeah, yeah,
3: very well said. Um, Donald Trump is not the American dream. Donald Trump is the American nightmare. Excellent, Sue. Thank you. Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, your thoughts?
0: Well, as a small town girl, when I was young, the American dream was the ability to live within your means. Mm -hmm. And people who could do that would be happy, not because they had a lot of money, but because they weren't afraid to lose their money. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is they've taken away the ability of any American, practically, that's not an oligarch or part of the rich Republican um, base, to not live in fear of losing their health care, their money, not being able to live within their means because they pretty much don't have their means anymore
3: right yeah
0: unfortunately, I'm old enough to hopefully survive all this because i'm retired now, but I lived through the times when if you lived within your means you could you could do well and still be happy, not because of money because money doesn't make you happy, but stress without money not having money brings you
3: stress right no i, I... So, I, 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 remember it too. And I, 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 absolutely agree. Denise, very well said. Thank you very much. Russell in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Russell, what's up?
6: Hey Tom. Um, I was uh, watching, uh, Michael Moore's movie. Uh, sorry about that.
3: Uh, quite all right. I can hear you.
6: I was watching Michael Moore's movie, uh, where Should we Evade next? And I was struck by my, the difference between my life here in America and the lives of the people in Europe. I lived in Europe, uh, four years when I was younger, and I felt the uh, the community, the 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 hope, the, the I don't know, the love uh, it, that's different than here in America. America tends to be a little more uh, um, grab what you can, and anyway, um, I, I thought it was the most interesting part of the whole thing was at the very end where he spoke about all of the different countries that he um, visited with, you know, healthcare and um, leave and vacation and, and just all of it, they, they all... Said the basis for all of their, you know, the things they've done in this society were were American ideals. Mm-hmm. We've lost
3: from the forties. American okay, I- American uh, ideals from the nineteen forties, as espoused by FDR right, and Harry Truman. That's basically what built Europe.
6: Exactly, and 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 we need. I, you know, it, it sounds trite to say, "Oh, we need to get that back," but I mean we need to get that
3: back yeah i think we need to go back to core values and i think that if the democratic party um you know i, I see this this uh, sniping war going on right now in the democratic party you know howard dean and all this kind of stuff and i'm like come on let's just go back to forget about bernie and hillary and all that other kind of nonsense let's go back to core principles fdr's second bill of rights the democratic party could win massively on that you're listening to tom hartman visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives because fdr's second bill of rights is the american dream for every american this time not just white men we'll be back It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical rights stealth plan for America. It really is a deep history, it's brilliant. Uh, This is from the introduction. As 1956 drew to a close, Colgate Whitehead Darden Jr., the president of the University of Virginia, feared for the future of his beloved state. The previous year, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued its second Brown v. Board of Education ruling calling for the dismantling of segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. In Virginia, outraged school, uh, state officials responded with legislation to force the closure of any school that planned to comply. Some extremists called for ending public education entirely. Darden, who earlier in his career had been the governor, could barely stand to contemplate the damage such a rash move would inflict. Even the name of this plan, Massive Resistance, made his gentlemanly Virginia sound like Mississippi. On his desk was a proposal written by a man who had recently been appointed chair of the economics department at the University of Virginia. 37 year old James McGill Buchanan likes to call himself a Tennessee country boy, but Darden knew better. No less a figure than Milton Friedman had it extolled Buchanan's potential. As Darden reviewed the document, he might have wondered if the newly hired economist had read his mind. For without mentioning the crisis at hand, Buchanan's proposal put in writing what Darden was thinking. Virginia needed to find a better way to deal with the incursion on states' rights represented by Brown versus Board of Education. To most Americans living in the North, Brown was a ruling to end segregated schools, nothing more, nothing less, and Virginia's response was about race. But to men like Darden and Buchanan, two well-educated sons of the South who were dedicated to the idea of, uh, to its model of political economy, Brown voted a sea change on much more. At a minimum, federal courts could no longer be counted on to defer reflexively to states' rights arguments. More concerning was the likelihood that the high court would be more willing to intervene when presented with compelling evidence that a state action was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. States' rights, in effect, were yielding in preeminence to individual rights. It was not difficult for either Darden or Buchanan to imagine how a court might now rule— presented with the evidence of the state of Virginia's archaic labor relations, its measures to suppress voting, or its efforts to buttress the power of reactionary rural whites by underrepresenting the moderate voters of the cities and suburbs of northern Virginia. Federal meddling could rise to levels once unimaginable. James McGill Buchanan was not a member of the Virginia elite, nor is there any explicit evidence to suggest that for a white southerner of his day, he was uniquely racist or insensitive to the concept of equal treatment. And yet, somehow, all he saw in the Brown decision was coercion. And not just in the abstract, but the court ruling represented to him was personal. Northern liberals, the very people who looked down on Southern whites like him, he was sure, were now going to tell his people how to run their society. And to add insult to injury, he and people like him with property were now, no doubt, going to be taxed more to pay for all the improvements that were now deemed necessary and proper for the state to make. What about his rights? Where did the federal government get the authority to engineer society to its liking and then send him the bill? Who represented their interests in all this? I can fight this, he concluded. I want to fight this. Find the resources, he proposed to Darden, for me to create a new center on the campus of the University of Virginia, and I will use this center to create a new school of political economy and social philosophy. It would be an academic center, rigorously so, but one with a quiet political agenda to defeat the perverted form of liberalism that sought to destroy their way of order, of life. A social order, as he described it, to promote a social order, as he described it, built on individual liberty. A term with its own coded meaning, that, but one that Darden surely understood. The center Buchanan promised would train a, new li- a line of new thinkers in how to argue against those seeking to impose an increasing role of government in economic and social life. He could win this war, and he would do it with ideas. While it's hard for most of us today to imagine how Buchanan or Darden or any other reasonable, rational human being saw the racially segregated Virginia of the 1950s as a society built on the rights of the individual, in quotes, no matter how that term was defined, it is not hard to see why the Brown decision created a sense of grave risk among those who did believe that. Buchanan fully understood the scale of the challenge he was undertaking and promised no immediate results, but he made clear that he would devote himself passionately to this cause. Some may argue that while D- Darden fulfilled his part, he found the money to establish the set center, he never got much in return. Buchanan's team had no discernible success in decreasing the federal government's pressure on the South all the way through the 60s and 70s. But take a longer view, follow the story forward to the second decade of the 21st century, and a different picture emerges, one that is both a testament to Buchanan's intellectual powers and at the same time the utterly chilling story of the ideological origins of the single most powerful and least understood threat to democracy today, the attempt by the billionaire-backed radical right to undo democratic governance. For what becomes clear as the story moves forward decade by decade is that a quest that began as a quiet attempt to prevent the state of Virginia from having to meet national democratic standards for fair treatment and equal protection under the law would, some 60 years later, become the veritable opposite of itself. A stead, stealth bid, bid to reverse engineer all of America, democracy and change. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you and super happy to have in the studio with me, the executive director of Social Security Works, the owner and producer of We Act Radio, socialsecurityworks.org, of course, the website, Alex Lawson, the brilliant Alex Lawson, uh, a law 202 is his Twitter handle and uh, the website is socialsecurityworks.org mm-hmm. Thank you, Alex, for joining Thank us. you, Tom. So big news in the, um, in the, in the pharmaceutical realm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this. I, I,
7: it's I, big submerged news, mm-hmm. um, which as you know, uh, oftentimes a lot of the worst stuff that happens in this town is happens and no one even knows it's happening right it's it's where the lobbyists hang all of the terrible things Mm. um so bear with me on this one but the fda reauthorization so the funding for the fda who are who regulate all the drugs is actually a process it's a user fee process so it's the pharmaceutical industry itself funds the fda through these things called user fees They come up every five years, and it's usually a grab bag of giveaways for pharma because it's what's called a must-pass, right? Um, In this town, that's where you hang things because it has to pass or the FDA shuts. Um, That just happened last week. It went through, and it was a really interesting showdown. Social Security Works, we've been working on this for over a year uh, to keep a giveaway out of this process. Uh, I know you know this. Uh, but monopoly power is how the pharmaceutical companies rip us off, right? They charge these insane prices because they can, because they have government granted monopolies or they act uh, in criminal collusion. Uh, there's a bunch of ways they do it, but it's always monopoly power when it is a patent. Uh, what they are always going for is extending that exclusivity, right? So they say, Oh, give me six more months for this or six more months
3: for that." strengthening the penalties,
7: Right. And, and in trade deals, right, going in and eviscerating other countries' ability to have generics. Uh, this one, the Open Act, was the latest version of extending the exclusivity. So they say, oh, it's for orphan drugs. You know, it's for it's for research into treating a rare and orphan diseases, which sounds good. Uh, but at the last count, 75% of drugs on the market qualify for this orphan status, right? So you're mm. like... Now, I don't think that's what it's about. It's a giveaway. Um, But the interesting thing, Pharma is so reviled right now uh, that when we were walking around the hill, you know, we've been doing grassroots, grass tops, as much pressure as we can to keep this out. And there was a lot of like nodding along. I do not want to be seen as giving anything to Pharma right now. You know,
3: I, it seems uh, just looking at this politically, and then I want to get back to the, you know, what's actually going on. And I want to talk about these share buybacks, Mm -hmm. Um, but it seems to me that there was a, an inflection point in the last year. And that was when Cory Booker supported uh, or voted against the ability of Americans to import drugs from Canada and other countries, but Canada would be the major supplier Um, and You know, and and was doing so apparently because he was taking big money from the pharmaceutical industry. He took so much flack for that that he changed his position. Um, He publicly came out and trashed the industry that had been funding him. Obviously, the guy wants to be president of the United States, and and he's noticing which way the wind blows, which I think is great. I, I want my politicians to say, oh, I shouldn't have done that, and I'm going to change my position when it's in a positive direction. But I'm guessing a whole lot of other politicians, particularly in the Democratic Party, looked at the serious flack that Cory Booker got and, and said, uh, you know, I don't want that happening to me.
7: And uh, I just extending that slightly, cause I think you're completely right. And that we saw that in this UFA fight, sorry, the user fee is shorthanded here. UFA. Um, I want to point a couple more things out though. Cory Booker then promised he wasn't going to take any money from the pharmaceutical industry, right? Which as you said, it's a good thing. But the magnitude of that, I think, escapes people a little bit because that'd be like Chuck Schumer saying he wasn't going to take any money from Wall Street. Right. These are the biggest donors in in New Jersey, especially pharmaceutical companies. New Jersey is their backyard. Uh, And for decades, literally decades, it has not been a bad thing for Democrats to take pharmaceutical industry money. They, they were, they would defend it's the it. the hometown industry and in they, New Jersey. Exactly. And, and they would defend it. But even uh, nationally, it was not looked at as a bat. Their money did oh, not. because they're saving lives. And innovation. And they're a yeah. great American innovator. And, right. but then what we've seen is that they're not, they're not doing innovation that, you know, they're Martin Shkreli now. And people are so mad about their drug prices. And Heather Brush And exactly. Yeah. Uh, mylan and the EpiPen now their money is tainted and the magnitude of Cory Booker taking that flack and then saying, I'm not going to take any more money from the industry is huge. And that's why we have to push this advantage. Uh, we have to make it really toxic to be associated with
3: the pharmaceutical industry. Right. And meanwhile, let me just, uh, you know, I've, I've been talking about this a lot lately to, to, uh, to our, to our audience, to our you know, people watching, listening to the program. Um, The scam that senior executives have been playing ever since Reagan changed the rules on executive compensation, used to be prior to the 1980s, you couldn't compensate somebody with stock. The tax code didn't allow for it. In fact, the tax code excluded it. And uh, Reagan changed that. Reagan and the Republicans changed that. And the Democrats, frankly, as well, with this whole ownership society idea. And so now uh, CEOs and senior executives seem to be far more concerned about the value of the stock than the quality or the value of the product that their company is producing. And case in point, the pharmaceutical industry, this is some zero hedge. Uh, Big pharmaceutical companies have spent more on share buybacks in a recent 10 year period than they did on research and development. And and of course, share buybacks are where you, you have the company buy, take its own profits, and buy its own stock in the open market, reducing the number of total shares available, which increases the price of every single share that is available. Even though you didn't make the company stronger, you didn't develop a new product, you didn't invent a, a blockbuster new drug. All you did was take the company from having you know 17 million shares outstanding to 15 million shares outstanding. But every sh- every stock a share, every share of stock is now worth three dollars more than they used to be. So when you cash in your your uh, you know uh, stock options, you make an extra million bucks. Mm-hmm. This is an absolute scam. That this uh, from 2006 to 2015, the 18 drug companies in the S and P 500 index spent a combined $516 billion yeah. on share buybacks and dividends, $500 billion. They only spent 400, $465 billion on R&D, and most of that R&D is not really R&D. It's being done in our universities. You want to riff on that for a
7: second? Definitely. I mean, it's uh, this is shocking. It's not shocking to me because I, I saw this. I, I came to D.C. after learning how bad this industry was working in clinics uh, and my job was paperwork to get clients the drugs that they were prescribed by their doctors, which was impossible. It was so complex and Byzantine because the prices were outrageous, but no one could even tell you what the prices were. At the same time, these pharmaceutical reps would come in, you know, very nice, and they just give away all this stuff. And the thing for me, I was working in outreach HIV clinic in Chicago, uh, and. We, it was so hard. Our clients were were faced with very difficult situations, and the pharma rep brought me a self-stirring coffee mug, a self-stirring coffee mug <laughs> branded with their brand because using a spoon was too difficult, right? And I was like, why don't you just make the drugs affordable? <laughs> right. Because I thought they were in the business of, right, you picture them in lab coats. You picture drug companies as lab coats. It's completely wrong, and it hasn't been that way basically since Reagan Picture them as bankers. They're wearing $6,000 suits, and they are not looking to create new things. What they're looking for are opportunities where they can jack the price up. So they look at old things, buy them, and then jack the price up. And then they have an army of
3: marketers. That's mainly what they do. They don't Mm -hmm. do research and and development. And lawyers to keep... Lawyers. Competitors out there, and now this this latest scam. I was just reading about this in either the New York Times or the Financial Times uh, last night, as I recall, is uh, that it's getting harder and harder to get generic drugs. Your doctor prescribes a generic drug for you. You go to the pharmacy. The pharmacy says, "I'm sorry, United Healthcare won't pay for the generic mm-hmm. drug. You have to buy the full price retail drug, the the brand name drug." So instead of a ten dollar prescription, you now have a fifty dollar prescription. Oh, and by the way. Your insurance doesn't cover the first $1,000 or 2000 or 5000 or whatever it may be, so you have to pay for this out-of-pocket. Turns out the reason why the insurance company, which makes, seems to make no sense, why do they want to require you to buy a more expensive drug, turns out they're getting such huge kickbacks mm-hmm. from the drug companies that they're actually making a profit on the brand-name drugs through the kickbacks, and you're the one who's paying the price through your out-of-pocket p- portion of it, and so the, the, the insurance companies are making more money requiring you to use brand name drugs than they would if you were using cheaper generics because of this whole kickback scheme. This seems to me like something that should involve a RICO prosecution.
7: Uh, I couldn't agree more. RICO would be one way of going. FTC should definitely smash uh, the collusion that goes on, right? I mean, the, the, an industry is not allowed to do that. Uh, but well, they're doing it exactly. They're They've got to wait.
3: Healthcare was the name. It was the company that was called out in this. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was the New York Times. Article. It was
7: New York Times. Yeah. Yep. And it's totally true. And that's like I'm not exaggerating. That's like the least of their terrible behavior. That's like just accepted. They created a whole industry, the PBMs, the ph- pharmacy benefit managers, a whole like cutout industry whose job it is is to work with the insurance companies to create these upward uh, like pressure. Uh, Price pressures as long as you pay for it. Right. So they use complex rebate schemes, which are kickbacks. But, you know, they're like, oh, no, you don't know how much the drug costs because we use rebates and very few people actually pay the full price of the drug. And you're like, yeah. That's the problem. We don't know what the drug costs and who pays what. Well, not
3: only that, the rebates go into the insurance company exactly. rather than to me. Exactly. <laughs> so so the insurance company is pushing me to use my my out-of-pocket money to pay, to, to buy the more expensive drug.
7: Let me add one thing in there that was uh, touched on, but there are gag rules on pharmacists from pointing out that sometimes, like, they see it and that your deductible is going to be higher than if you just bought the drug uh over the counter, without using your insurance, and they are not allowed to tell you that uh, because this industry is not a bunch of people. Wait a in minute! That are house.
3: you saying that if I go in and I, I have a prescription, I buy a drug, and the guy says, "Okay, it's fifty dollars as a deductible against your insurance," and I say, "I don't
7: want it. I don't no, want my ded- insurance
3: to pay for it. Just let me buy the drug. It'll only be thirty dollars."
7: Yes, that uh, um, not deductible though. It's uh or is it deductible? I'm sorry, the out of pocket. The out of pocket portion. Yeah. portion uh, it can be higher than if you just don't use your insurance and you at all and they know it pharmacists can see that uh, but they're
3: not allowed by by uh, contract by policy to do so mm-hmm. alex lawson you. the executive director of social security works social a law 202 is his twitter handle thank you Alex. thanks tom welcome back tom hartman here with you uh this from uh, zero hedge this uh, from today's uh, zero hedge the the uh, The article, Big Pharma Spends on Share Buybacks, but R&D, not so much. And as I I shared with you during my conversation with Alex in this period from 2006 to 2015, roughly a decade, the 18 drug companies in the S&P 500 spent $516 billion on share buybacks and dividends. Uh, This exceeded by 11% the company's R&D spending. So when you see these wonderful ads on TV about how we're spending money to develop, you know, R&D and blah, blah, nah, not really. They're, they're spending money to buy back their shares so their executives can get rich, 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 rich. <laughs> oh, you know, Scrooge McDuck in the money bin. But the other part of it that Zero Hedge points out, and, and rightly so, is that uh, well, while, while stock buybacks appear to be particularly troublesome among drug makers... Big companies in other industries and sectors like banking, retail, technology, and consumer groups, goods, are also buying back boatloads of their shares. In fact, $309 billion in share buybacks have been announced so far, actually as of May of this year, $309 billion in share buybacks, which produce absolutely no value. They do not increase the value of the company. They increase the stock, the price of the stock. But the value of the company is absolutely where it used to be. It, it hasn't changed at all. It just means every individual share of stock costs more. So, you know, what? where do you go with this? What do you do with this? I mean, this is, this is just... This has become, as a consequence of Reaganomics has become the new American business model. There's, there's basically two business models operating in the United States, neither one of which is healthy. For very, very large companies, they do two things. Number one, develop as large a monopoly as possible. Drive your competitors out of business or buy your competitors out of business, but eliminate competition, number one. And you see that across industries, whether it's retail, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's defense, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether whether it's media, uh, whether it's food, whether it's restaurants, whether it's lodging, whatever it may be, wipe out the competition, destroy small and medium-sized businesses, and have monopoly power. That's number one. And number two, inflate your 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 CEOs, inflate your stock price basically, and your CEO compensation by buying back your shares. So that's the. That's the business model with big companies. The biggest business model with small companies is build your company as fast as you can before one of these big guys has a chance to squash you like a bug so that you can sell it to one of the big guys in the first couple of years. Build your company. If you've got a new great new digital idea, build it up to the point where where Facebook is going to want to buy it and incorporate it into their product. Build it to the point where Microsoft is going to buy it and build it into their operating system build it to the point where Apple is going to want to make it part of what they're doing. In other words, sell it because the big guys are going to squash you like a bug, or they're going to simply steal your idea, let you sue them, give you a small payment, and on they go. Right. So, and, and whereas it used to be, hey, let's open a corner dry cleaning shop, and it'll run in this neighborhood for years and years, and I'll pass it along to my children and their children, or let's start a tool and die shop, or let's, you know, let's have a, a nice little retail store and sell furniture here, and some of it's made in our state. I mean, you know, we used to have small and medium-sized business. It used to be that you could visit cities all over the United States and know where you were, because the motels and hotels were named after the city. The restaurants were named after the city. Now it's all giant chain. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you, and I'm super happy to have in the studio with me Rob Weiss, Robert, also you know, Rob Weissman, uh, the president of Public Citizen, citizen.org, and uh, you can tweet him at public underscore underscore citizen. Rob, welcome, to, welcome to the program. It's great having you in the studio with us. Good to be with you. It's uh, and and you guys do such great work, and I've been a, such a big fan of Public Citizen forever. And uh, I got this email from you. I mean, it, me and ten thousand of our best friends, right? Got this, or however many you send, you know, a hundred thousand, whatever. Um, it says, Tom, I'm just back from outside the museum in Washington, D.C., where a lively band of protesters demonstrated outside a Koch brothers' event on tax policy, keynoted by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Now, that, just that sentence made my head explode. Wait a minute. The Koch brothers are running an event in Washington, D.C., with Steve Mnuchin, the guy from Goldman Sachs, who's now our Treasury Secretary, about tax policy. It's like, you know, what's the old saying when the, when the elephants dance, the mice get squished or whatever, you know, it's, it's, uh, what the heck is going on?
8: Uh, just what it seems like. So it's, we have tax policies can be brought to us by Goldman Sachs and the Koch brothers, which is just a marriage made in hell. Yeah. You know, (laughs) unbelievable greed, insatiable greed, and then a sort of fascistic, uh, anti-government ideology married and a tax proposal that we don't have the details of, but we know the outlines of, and, you know, the short version is slash taxes on the super rich and corporations. That's it. Yeah, that's really, that's, <laughs> that's it. it. That's the story.
3: And, and, well, they, I, you know, typically there's a throw the dog a bone in there. I mean, with George W. Bush, when he wanted to cut taxes, uh, it was actually Bernie who shamed him into it. He was like, you know, if you're going to have a tax cut, you have to at least give a couple hundred bucks to the average person, you know, And so they threw in that three. Everybody got a $300 check, as I recall. or Maybe it was $200. I remember when I got mine. And what amazed me was on the back of it where you uh, sign it, it said something like this. You know, President George W. Bush made it possible for you to get this tax. You know, I mean, there was a sales pitch on the damn thing. And and uh, I'd
8: be surprised if they didn't do something like that. Yeah, I think that will be part of it. Mnuchin, uh, you know, when they were in the early portion of talking about taxes back in like February or whatever, he said. You know, this is only going to be a middle class tax cut. Everything's middle class, and no, there will be no tax cut on the rich. Uh, and some people label that Minuchin's rule. Well, that's that rule has been smashed to smithereens because we know the outline of what they proposed. And it's like, no inheritance tax, slashing the rate on corporations from thirty five percent to fifteen percent. No alternative minimum tax, which means which uh, means Trump is going to stop paying taxes altogether. That would. And one year, The one year we know about that would have helped save him about $20 million. Right. Uh, let super rich people who run their lives as corporations like Donald Trump pay taxes at the corporate rate instead of the individual rate, which means he personally would go down from 35% to 15%. Right. The Trump Organization is over 500 of these pass-through entities That's right. that all basically just pass through to his personal tax return. Right, and just no reason why you'd have a corporate structure like that uh, unless you're Except just trying taxes. to evade taxes, right? Right. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Who?
3: Who wants to create 500 companies? I mean, you yeah, know, makes no sense. Um, so, where? We, what is specifically? What are the Koch brothers and Mnuchin up to? In this larger frame of, we want to make life easier for billionaires in America and harder for working class people.
8: So, in terms of beyond, you know, you may remember that Mnuchin and Gary Cohn. The other Goldman Sachs guy who's running economic policy put out a one-page outline, supposed outline, bullet points of the the Trump tax plan. Apparently that was all they could manage was one page. Maybe they were trying to explain it to Trump. Yeah, I think that probably had to do with Trump's (laughs) attention span. We don't really know anything at all about details. Um, But we do know what really more about the politics of how it's gonna play out. And there's gonna be some very complicated problems for them in Congress. And I think at the end of the day, I would bet that they're gonna fail, but they're gonna make a big play. The Koch brothers and their main front group, Americans for Prosperity, launched their tax initiative at this event at the museum that I and others were protesting outside of. They're going to do dozens of events around the country trying to show the grassroots support for what they're going to call tax reform, which is really just tax cuts for, for the rich. Are they, are they rolling out the Tea Party,
3: uh, I mean, they, they, they created this infrastructure through Americans for Prosperity and a bunch of other front groups. They funded these Tea Party groups, they they hired buses, painted them, hundreds of thousands of dollars per bus, painted them, drove people in, all this, you know, to create this appearance of a, of a grassroots uprising against Obamacare in 2009, as I recall, um, and then used that as a political cudgel. Are they are they bringing back the old band, or are they creating a whole brand new one?
8: Well, I think it's evolved, and, you know, we'll see. It's... It- how they sell to their people, because they do have some real people that they should be out on the streets to protest to help Goldman Sachs. That'll be fun to watch. But, uh, but they're
3: doing it right now. I mean, you've got people who, who, who will get into a fistfight defending Donald Trump, <laughs> having, Goldman, having five Goldman Sachs guys in his, yeah. in his sitting, you know, within 100 feet of him in the White House.
8: Um, but one thing that's happened since 2009 is that this group, Americans for Prosperity, has really built itself up. So they're doing more now through the organization, their centralized organization, which has chapters everywhere, than they did, I think, back in the 2009-2010 period. So we'll see. So they're is, promising that, and then there's others, another sort of more mainline traditional corporate conservative group says they're throwing 20 million dollars in TV ads to push the tax plan. Wow. Americans for uh, the American Action Fund. Right. Starting that initiative right now. Now this is this is a you know Americans for Prosperity
3: and the Allied pieces of basically the Koch network that are operating on the ground across the united states from what i've read are more well financed than the republican party have more employees than the republican party have more offices than the republican party um, how can the republican pa- and 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 basically are defining policy for the republican party and then through alec they're actually writing the laws that the republican party is passing um, would it be uh, Inappropriate to say that basically the Republican Party has ceased to exist and has become the Koch Party, and 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 if so, what does that mean for the future of American politics?
8: Well, it's not just the Koch Party. There are other factions, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is another faction. They've got a big role in deciding what, right. what Republican uh, Party politics are. But then you got of, the and then
3: you've got people like Adelson, who's all about Israel, yeah. and Mercer, who's so all about. Yeah,
8: You've got all these sort of crazy little centers of power, right. in which core you know will all come from big money. Right. Um, but you're absolutely right that this Americans for Prosperity, in terms of grassroots presence, office presence, on the ground presence, and more, and investment in um, information technology, they're bigger and more advanced than the Republican Party. They're probably, as an aside, and you know this well as me, bigger probably and more advanced than the Democratic Party too. Yes, they have. They're, they're creating. They're trying to create a real structure, and the party, both parties, both main parties, are themselves shells of what traditional parties involving real people, organizing them down to the precinct level used to be. And this, uh,
3: would this have been possible under the the 1973 reforms that were struck down by the Supreme Court in 76 in the Buckley decision? Um, it, it, I mean, ha, has there been a, how do you, how do you control oligarch power? Jimmy Carter was on this program two years ago and he said, um, you know, America is no longer a democracy. It's an oligarchy with unlimited political bribery. And I was just like, and he just said it. Yes. It's gone viral on the internet. You can find it on YouTube. And, and I was just shocked that he was so blunt, but he was just totally matter of fact about that. What do we do? What is public citizen doing? Citizen.org.
8: As as you know, it's not just one thing. Right. Um, And some of these things would be possible even without Buckley and that horrible line of decisions. And some of them wouldn't be. Right. We, I think that that's a good place to start is starting with the money in politics and getting getting money out of electoral politics and the big money dominance. So we have to re- we have to overturn Citizens United. For a glimmer of time there was a, a real prospect of doing that through the Supreme Court. That's now off the table for decades. Mm. So oh that- because of Gorsuch. Yeah. And just have we're going we're going to be stuck with the Supreme Court um, for a long we're time. Back to absent, the absent, court right now. Ver- absent something quite extraordinary. So we're going to have to win the constitutional amendment to both overturn Citizens United, overturn Buckley and and, and take away some of these corporate rights. Um, we can do some other important things with money and politics reform, even while Citizens United is in place, um, starting with public financing, but we're gonna have to deal with that. Right. And then it's a long set of things, but you know, to the Kochs, these are, they're, these are reinforcing things. And that's why tax is so important. The concentration of wealth the, gives them the political power, which they get through money. They invest the money to then push policies that let them concentrate more wealth. So it becomes this horrible cycle. And we don't, there's not one place to intervene, but we do have to intervene. Yeah. So uh, the the the
3: primary pressure point for somebody who is listening right now, um, obviously, you know, go to citizens.org, become part of Public Citizen, you know, be an activist in this regard. You're, you're one of the better on the ground organizations out there and you're doing great work. What What are the other things that people can and should be doing Where should we be focusing our attention? Uh, You know, what is, what is central and what is peripheral?
8: Well, for the next little while, this tax debate is going to be central. So I think anything that people's going on, going on in local communities to deal with the tax issue, that's going to be huge. And then I wish we could say that the, that Trump was just kind of a sidelight and doesn't get to the real core issues of power, which is true in its way, except the president is not a sidelight and a guy who's flirting with fascism is, is, we can't just sort of brush them aside. So I think all the mobilization, anti-Trump mobilization has been extraordinary, starting with the Women's March and then defeating healthcare uh, repeal legislation. That's been, I think, crucial and really just shows that being in the streets is more important than anything. And then if there's other one last issue for people to grab onto, I think coming out of that, stopping the rollback of Medicaid, we're gonna have a real chance now to drive forward the move for single payer for, for real Medicare for all. I think people should spend some time on that. We're not going to win it the next year or two, but we are going to win it. Well,
3: it's a starting point. There was a legislation introduced to just drop the eligibility age to 55. That, that That's one of those things where the health insurance companies are probably not going to aggressively lobby against it, which is why they didn't aggressively lobby against Medicare to begin with, because the the older somebody is, the more expensive they are. To,
8: to I'm not uh, sure the insurers will go along with it, but I agree. I think that's the stepwise way to go. Yeah. So you start
3: there, and then and then the second step would be throwing a public option into Obamacare.
8: I'm not big on the public option. I worry about that actually sort of has the cherry picking problem, and lets insurance companies get off easy. I would then expand it to include uh, kids, yeah, bring, you know under 18 in. So every, every kid. This is, you know Medicare? Robert
3: Robert Ball, the the guy who who invented Medicare. You know, famously, well not so famously actually, most people don't know about it. You know, he and LBJ planned on Medicare being the
8: national know health. That was everybody. And oh, by yeah. the way, to close the circle. Jimmy Carter just come out now, plain speaking. Time for single payer. Wow. That's wonderful. Rob Weissman, the president
3: of Public Citizens, Citizen.org. Rob, thanks so much. With us. To be with you as always. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between. Plus, the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow.